I feel like we have been talking about biosimilars for like the last 10 years, but it's just now in the last couple few years that we're seeing a real impact, a substantial impact on companies' revenues. That's Karita Anderson, my manager here at Fierce Life Sciences. Later, we'll hear more from her about the top 10 most profitable pharma companies in 2021. I'm Teresa Carey, and this is The Top Line from Fierce Biotech, Fierce MedTech, and Fierce Pharma. This episode is brought to you by GoodRx. Today is Friday, June 17th, and, well, we're all celebrating here at Fierce because our team's faces are plastered on billboards at Bio International Convention. We'll go try to find them later, but in the meantime, stick with us. We've got all the biopharma and medtech industry news you need. A month after Pfizer agreed to delay supplies of its COVID-19 vaccine to the European Union, Europe is pressuring Pfizer to delay deliveries even more. Here's Kevin Dunleavy. Remember just a year ago when people were in a rush to get their COVID vaccines? Well, those days have long passed. Despite Moderna and Pfizer saying booster shots are needed at regular intervals, people have turned away from the vaccines. And it's not just happening in America. In May, the European Union made a deal with Pfizer to delay vaccine supplies by at least three months. Now, here we are just a month later, and Europe is pressuring Pfizer to delay deliveries further. Here's an example of the problem. In Poland, where 60% of its people are fully vaccinated, the country's stockpile will grow to 100 million doses this year if the country is to fulfill its existing contracts. That's way more than it needs considering its population is 38 million. Pfizer's contract with Europe calls for it to deliver 1.8 billion doses to the bloc through 2023, and now it's clear that Europe is not going to need that many shots. GSK has claimed a clinical win for a phase 3 RSV vaccine in older adults. Here's Annalie Armstrong. GSK has reversed its fortunes in RSV. Earlier this week, they posted some positive data on a vaccine candidate for the virus in older adults. The shot apparently cleared a phase 3 trial by recording a reduction in cases of lower respiratory tract disease caused by RSV in adults 60 years and older. Unfortunately, that's all we know about the details, as GSK is keeping mum for now on the hard numbers. In April, Chief Scientific Officer Hal Barron said that an effect of 50% or more would be his bar for calling the shot clinically meaningful. His idea of very good? 70%. The market will now have to wait and see if GSK has a real contender. I'm pretty sure the iPhone changed my life and I'm barely tapping into its capabilities. Well, now Rune Labs is using the Apple Watch to help people with Parkinson's disease. Here's Andrea Park to tell us how it works. Since the launch of the Apple Watch in 2015, Apple has been on a quest to take it from a glorified step counter to a full-blown medical device. The latest versions of the smartwatch have a built-in echocardiogram and a pulse oximeter. Now, a new app turns it into a continuous monitor for Parkinson's disease and the FDA just cleared it. Treating Parkinson's typically requires patients to keep detailed records of their own symptoms and reactions to medication, but the new app from Rune Labs aims to take away the bulk of that burden. The Strive PD app uses the Apple Watch's built-in technology to automatically track physical activity, sleep patterns, and vital signs. It can also spot tremors and changes in gait and detect falls, all of which are crucial in monitoring Parkinson's patients. 
Patients can also track changes in their mood and overall well-being through the Apple Watch app. All of that information is then compiled into a single report that they can view and share with their healthcare providers. In addition to potentially improving treatments on an individual basis, Rune Labs said the data collected by the app could also help shape clinical trials for entirely new Parkinson's treatments. All thanks to that little device on your wrist. The FDA Advisory Committee met last Thursday and Friday. The stakes were high, and Bluebird Bio came away on top. The committee endorsed two of its gene therapy candidates. After a short break, we'll hear from Karita Anderson and Eric Seganowski to tell us more. For people like you who work in healthcare every day, it feels good to help others find the best care at the best price possible. But first, you need a better, more efficient way to identify and connect with appropriate patients and providers. And that's how GoodRx can help you. GoodRx provides a trusted platform to connect with highly qualified patients and providers during pivotal moments in their healthcare journeys. GoodRx has a range of solutions to help you build awareness, improve access, and remove barriers to adherence. Learn more about the benefits of partnering with GoodRx at www.goodrx.com solutions. Let's talk Bluebird Bio, Eric, uh, and the potential for it to finally get its gene therapies approved here in the U.S. So at the end of last week, right, Bluebird went into a high-stakes two-day meeting with the FDA's Independent Expert Advisory Panel. But Bluebird was definitely able to convince the panel and received unanimous endorsements for both of the two meds. So let's start with the first med under consideration, Elivaldogene Autotemcel or Elicel, as it's known uh, uh, for short. Uh, so Elicel is designed for uh, patients under 18 who have a rare neurological disorder called cerebral adrenal leukodystrophy, or CALD. CALD is a really devastating disease that affects children who often don't live much more than a couple of decades. Over time, these patients can lose their sight or hearing and find it difficult to walk. The only treatment out there for them is bone marrow transplant, which definitely is very effective, but mostly when the donor is a sibling. So Bluebird tested Elicel in children who don't have a sibling donor. So Eric, tell us about the results and importantly, what the advisory committee had to say about the data. Yeah, so Elicel's a one-time gene therapy. It takes its own a patient's own stem cells and uses a virus to shuttle in a corrected copy of the mutated gene. One of the important things about gene therapy is that researchers are, want to know how long the drug works because it's given once. Um, they don't know exactly how long it's going to work. So these studies take years. In the Starbeam study, the company said that 87% of patients were alive and free of major functional disabilities at two years of follow-up. 14 of the patients achieved four years of follow-up and 10 achieved five years of follow-up. So these data were a major win and the panel was clearly impressed. Yeah. And interestingly, they, you know, voted in favor of LACL, but it wasn't all glowing for the efficacy analysis. Um, interestingly, FDA's briefing documents did take issue with some elements of the efficacy data itself, didn't it? In the main study, uh, Bluebird submitted 24 months of follow-up and the FDA they weren't sure whether that was long enough. Even after all the discussion, um, the the panelists didn't seem too worried about the durability. They saw it as a 
promising treatment for, as you mentioned earlier, patients with only one other option. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, it is a very dire disease. There aren't any options, uh, but that is the tough spot that trials for gene therapies that are meant to treat a chronic disease have with designing it so it's long enough to give you know, confidence that over the course of more than two years, since this trial was 24 months, it is actually going to be effective. Uh, but it is one of those uh, between a rock and a hard place type of situations. And you mentioned, Eric, the safety issues uh, that uh, were also flagged uh, in the briefing documents itself. And basically, what the FDA staffers were pointing to was that in the data used for Elisel's approval application, some 4% of patients developed myelodysplastic syndrome, which is a type of cancer. The briefing document stated, uh, quote, the significant yet uncertain risk of this life-threatening complication must be considered in the context of the product's, product's benefit to patients. Yeah. And again, during the meeting, um, Leah Krasafi, uh, FDA clinical reviewer, she said it's a significant risk, um, and she said it's likely to increase because of the duration of, of the follow-up in the study. So all that went down last Thursday. Then on Friday, the same FDA advisory panel voted uh, in favor of approving Bluebird's Beatty Beglogene Autotem cell. So that one's known as Beatty cell, um, also gene therapy, and was under review to treat adolescent and pediatric beta thalassemia patients those specifically who require regular red blood cell transfusions. So tell us how things went down on Friday. Yeah, on, on this drug, the FDA review went more positively. And um, I think there was a sense that this vote was going to go better for Bluebird. And like the Thursday vote, they, they won unanimous support. In this disease, patients experience severe anemia and lifelong dependence on red blood cell transfusions. Um, but in data as of August 2021, 89% or 34 of 38% patients treated with Betty Cell achieved transfusion independence. So once again, we heard from several panelists that they were very impressed with this transfusion independence and that it merits being approved. Yeah, I remember as these drugs for gene therapies were going through earlier clinical trials, that endpoint of getting free or becoming free from red blood cell transfusions was quite a big deal. And it was pretty obvious early on that that was one that uh, baby cell could probably score well on. And we're seeing that now come to fruition. So, you know, of course, the fact that both reviews had a positive outcome for Bluebird is bound to be a relief for the company. The FDA, to be clear, isn't mandated to follow the panel's recommendation, but usually the FDA does. Though I do wonder what will happen with Cell, given the FDA staffer's concern on efficacy, duration, and safety. Either way, Eric, I think you'd probably agree that when it comes to revenues, Cell will be more significant given that Cell's target pop patient population is really very small. Uh, and Bluebird really does need a win with Beatty Cell. Uh, the gene therapies clinical trials in the U.S. saw several setbacks, so it's getting to the FDA later than it was expected to. And while the company did manage to get it over the regulatory finish line in Europe, the gene therapy is no longer on the market in Europe. So what happened there? Yeah, gene therapy pricing and reimbursements, uh, I'm really interested in this topic. Um 
in in Europe, they price it at about, I believe it was about $1.8 million at the time and the Euro equivalent. Um, and in the end, they couldn't get uh, national reimbursement agencies on board with that price. So in gene therapy marketing, you have to prove that it's a one-time drug. So either payers are paying upfront or over several years, and you have to convince them that the value is going to be there over time. So they couldn't yeah, do it. That's not in a Europe. small price to pay. Not at all. <laughs> they couldn't do it in Europe, so they actually ended up leaving the market, and now they're counting on the United States market. Um, there's already some indication that they might see more success in the U.S. A prominent U.S. white price watchdog called ICER has endorsed um, a potential $2.1 million price tag on Betty Cell. That's that's definitely um, a big price tag. Uh, so, you know, all eyes are on FDA's final decision now. Um, we are expecting that by August 19th for Betty Cell and September 16th for Ellie Cell. Bluebird has one more gene therapy and clinical development, so having an approval in the bag will certainly reassure investors about the company's gene therapy expertise. These are, like you said, Eric, one-time gene therapies, which would be a big development for patients with either of these diseases. Um, we're really at an interesting time when it comes to various gene therapy technologies. So besides watching for those approvals, which are going to come through or not come through in the next few months, we'll also be watching for CRISPR-based medicines in development that could displace these gene therapies if they do get to the market. Yeah, it's an exciting time. Angus Liu is going to tell us about two interesting drug approvals from this week. The FDA has greenlighted the first therapy for alopecia which triggers hair loss. The approval went to Eli Lilly and Insight Alumiant, the same drug that's also approved for certain COVID patients. The alopecia nod comes after the recent episode at the Oscars, where Will Smith slapped Chris Rock. That fueled a conspiracy theory about Pfizer, which was an Oscar sponsor and also has a, an alopecia drug. But that's another story. The FDA also signaled a go-ahead for alnylams and mutra for rare disease impairing the nerves called polyneuropathy of hereditary ATTR amyloidosis. The approval marks alnylams' second RNA interference drug for ATTR, and mutra comes with a convenience advantage compared to that first therapy called Ampatrol. And mutra is given under the skin once every three months while well, Ampatro is an IV infusion every three weeks. The FDA just approved a robotic exoskeleton suit. It's designed to help multiple sclerosis patients walk by supporting their legs. Here's Connor Hale with more. The FDA has cleared its first powered exoskeleton for people with multiple sclerosis. The robotic suit is worn during therapy to support the patient's balance and reinforce their legs using a combination of motors and movement sensors. It was originally designed and cleared by the FDA for people who were learning to walk again after a brain or spinal cord injury. But now the company, Exobionics, that's spelled E-K-S-O, says the device can help people with MS complete longer rehabilitation sessions without becoming tired. It helps the wearer stand up out of a wheelchair and move around with a cane or crutches. The exoskeleton isn't made to be worn around the house just yet. Exo plans to first develop the system for other patients that may have trouble walking, such as people with Parkinson's disease or cerebral palsy. 
The company also has an exoskeleton system to support paralyzed arms. And this mechanized approach has found its way into the industrial and manufacturing sector as well. Workers on the automobile and aircraft assembly lines at Ford and Boeing have both been using exoskeletons to help with strenuous tasks. Chances are, if you tested positive for COVID this year, you were offered Paxlovid. But Pfizer has given up on the drug in patients with a lower risk of severe disease. Here's Angus Liu to tell us why. Pfizer's COVID drug Paxlovid is somewhat of a dud, particularly in standard-risk patients. Paxlovid should lower the risk of a hospitalization and death. And it does, in high-risk patients. In patients who already have low risks of disease progression, Pfizer tested whether Paxlovid could help sustain symptom relief for four consecutive days. Turns out, it didn't do any better than the placebo. So Pfizer explored further. They waited longer to see if the drug could reduce the risk of progression to severe COVID. It didn't. As expected, both Paxlovid and the placebo recorded very few cases of hospitalization. So even though Paxlovid showed a relative advantage, the small numbers made it impossible to reach a definite conclusion. Pfizer has hence stopped enrollment in the clinical trial but said it will continue to evaluate treatment in populations with high unmet needs. While revenue reflects how well a company's products are selling, Profit is the financial metric that really matters. It tells investors how efficiently a company is managed and how healthy the business is overall. We've taken a look at these bottom-line figures and compiled a list of the top 10 most profitable pharma companies. And we've got Karita Anderson and Angus Liu to break it down. So a few weeks ago, we compiled our annual list of companies that made the most revenues. And while scouring financial reports for those top-line numbers, Angus, I know you and the team were also going through the bottom-line figures with a fine-tooth comb. And I remember you saying that was going to take more time to decipher. But this week, we're now out with our top profits report. It's the profit that really tells investors how efficient a company is, because obviously it's factoring in companies' expenses. So what I wanted to get into first with you, Angus, was the interesting fact that the six largest drug makers by 2021 revenues, Johnson & Johnson, Pfizer, Roche, AbbVie, Novartis, and Merck & Co., well, they all made the top profits list, but in quite a different order. There are a few, a couple of standouts. For example, AbbVie, it was number four in terms of revenue, but was number seven for net profit, Mm. even though it had two and a half times as many net income in 2021 than it did in 2020. So uh, uh, to give you another example, Roche, Roche ranked third on revenue, but fourth uh, with net income. Uh, And Roche was the only company on our list that reported a year-over-year net income decline in 2021. I guess the ongoing very similar competition is uh, kind of pressuring Roche's pricing for its biggest three cancer drugs. So these are not only hurting uh, its top line, but also kind of because you are you have to compete with biosimilars, you have you'd have to lower your prices. So then it also kinds of hurts your bottom line. 
You know, that's interesting. I feel like we have been talking about biosimilars for like the last 10 years, but it's just now in the last couple few years that we're seeing a real impact, a substantial impact on companies' revenues. Um, and besides Roche, there was one other Swiss company on the top 10 list, Novartis. And in fact, Novartis topped the leaderboard. Um, I think after the last couple of years of expecting Pfizer to be at the top of most lists, <laughs> that was a bit of a Pfizer surprise. Pfizer or J&J, actually. Yeah, the, exactly. The, the two largest ones, you them to top every list. Everywhere. Every list, yeah. So I, I even remember when you guys, you know, were doing the analysis and this came up and your emails about it, you were like, I've checked these numbers, I've double checked these numbers, but check again. Um, for you Pfizer fans out there, I should tell you, don't worry. Uh, Pfizer was a close second with $22 billion to Novartis's $24 billion. But uh, focusing on Novartis for a minute, it was really one particular item that helped push it to the top, wasn't it? Yeah, uh, it was uh, indeed a little bit of a surprise. Novartis nearly tripled its net income uh, this year, as you mentioned, to over $24 billion uh, in 2021. That was because it got a huge boost from selling its roughly one-third voting stake in Roche. Uh, Novartis sold the shares uh, for over $20 billion, uh, but the contribution to net income to the profit was uh, slightly smaller. Now, there's one more, uh, with a couple of more uh, foreign companies on this list. So let's turn to Danish company Novo Nordisk. With Novo, what I thought was interesting uh, was that Novo ranked 17th in terms of 2021 revenues but just about made it into our top profits list coming in at number 10. Right, indeed. So, uh, Karina, I think for no one nowadays, uh, it's large, I see my glutide business is really pulling off for the company. Uh, remember, it has um, the Ozempic injection uh, and Revelsus tablet. Both are contained as a glutide uh, active ingredient. Uh, but I think Novo Nordisk's uh, focus on diabetes and some related cardiometabolic conditions really kind of helped keep its focus and its profit in a healthy shape. So in the past few years, uh, its net profit margins, that is the, the, the ratio, the percentage of profit versus revenue, that margin has been relatively steady at around 33%. I think plus or minus uh, around 2% at maximum. So by comparison, you know, the two other, we have two other major diabetes players, uh, diabetes companies, Eli Lilly and Sanofi, uh, they didn't make all this uh, despite having bigger cells. So you kind of have, uh, have a broader portfolio, but less focus. You're right. I mean, Novo's name is really synonymous with diabetes drugs at this point, and it is really focused as a company. Um, and another good point you made is that, you know, its profits have stayed uh, pretty much the same. Um, Novo's bottom line in, did not um, increase a ton compared to 2020's roughly $6.44 billion in profits, but enough to get it on the board. On the flip side, Moderna, it made a whopping 66% net profit margin in 2021. And Biontech was the only other company on our list that 
crossed the 50% net profit margin mark. Of course, for both, it was the mRNA COVID vaccines, spike vaccine, and Cominati, um, as they're called, that were behind their rankings. I mean, Madonna went from a year in the red to posting the sixth highest net income figure in the industry, and BioNTech was number eight. Right. I think, Karina, BioNTech and Moderna are just perhaps once-in-a-lifetime examples. I mean, hopefully it was in So you're making a prediction, you know, yeah, we're not going to say that next the left time Because we don't want another COVID-19 pandemic. Yes, Drive yes. kind of those humongous cells. Very but, true. But uh, in most cases, uh, you have this, a clinical stage company, suddenly reeling in over 18 billion, nearly 19 billion annual sales from one single product. And you have relatively low marketing expenses because those COVID vaccines the government, the U.S. government, was handling the distribution before their full approval. So you even have lower marketing expenses. Really a large profit margin for these two COVID vaccine makers. In general, of course, its COVID antibody combination helped boost its net income uh, last year uh, to over $8 billion. Uh, that's compared with uh, $3.5 billion a year ago. 2022 could be a different story for the general. Uh, the antibody cocktail uh, was found to be relatively ineffective against Omicron, and the company has projected no revenue from the product at least in the first half of this year. Wow, zero revenues. Yeah, and with so many COVID companies getting on the top profit roster, obviously that edged out many big pharma companies. Uh, some notable missing names were Bristol-Myers Squibb and GSK, but also AstraZeneca uh, lost out, and that's despite it being a big name during the fight against COVID. But in fact, what we found was that its coronavirus vaccine actually cost AstraZeneca last year, which saw its earnings crash to just $112 million. It actually registers the losses, not making profits, but losses for the COVID vaccine for some time. The only company that we haven't spoken about is Merck. And I feel like Merck, like Johnson & Johnson, um, is another company that makes its money from more than just its pharma division. Merck was a little bit different from the others this year. Uh, its reported financial figures actually included a big chunk of this continued business what exactly contributed to the additional income? That was my question when I come up with the number. I mean, you have, you lost a big part of your business, but you still registered right. a 1% revenue growth. So for human medicine uh, alone, the human medicine segment alone, Merck reported nearly $5 billion increase in gross profits. And it also has an animal health segment that also helped so next year's list is uh, bound to be equally interesting and surprising. I'm sure we'll see a shakeup once again, particularly as some of the COVID players face declining sales this year or completely fall off the list. So Angus, it'll be back to the drawing board this time next year for you and the team to dig into those financial statements. Yeah, indeed. Connor, mm -hmm. I saw your poster for the bio conference. Oh yeah, 
Yeah. Have you seen it? I have. Yeah. Oh, it's fantastic. Oh, thanks. Yeah, it'll be uh, it'll be weird to see a, a large picture of me, but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Most people know journalists by name only. We tend to hide behind the pen, or the microphone rather, and some of us want to keep it that way. But this week there's no hiding, because our writers' mugs are plastered on billboards throughout San Diego, so everyone at the Bio International Conference will see them. So the signs are about 12 feet tall, and you can find them at bus stops and on the street. And each one has a larger-than-life picture of a journalist with bold splashes of red and blue. And it says, we are fierce, delivering news, revealing insights. That's Rebecca Williamson, Senior Vice President here at Fierce. And she says the posters were a way to put a face to the name and brand that you and the rest of our readers trust. But for us, well, we're feeling a little anxious. I mean, who wouldn't? So Max is reporting at Bio this week, but we've asked him to take a break from his work and please find the billboards. I am approaching the first billboard. It should be around the corner. Selfishly, I hope it's me. Uh, I think I'm going to approach with one eye open. This kind of feels like listening to your own voice in an interview. I don't know if I'm ready to see myself on a billboard. I got to say, uh, San Diego is a wonderful city. I mean, everyone gets to dress up in just like beach clothing all, all year. So while Max was looking for the billboards, I checked in with how the team was feeling about having a 12-foot version of themselves hanging around San Diego. Oh my God. I don't know how many people are seeing my face on a giant poster. (laughs) There's definitely a part of me that's happy to not see my likeness blown up and splashed out like that. I know I'm not the only person who doesn't like looking at their photographs. I was pretty amazed. I've never met Connor Hale, but uh, he looked fantastic in one of these pictures. Uh, he didn't look anything like his uh, his little mug. So I'm I'm pregnant, and they were this photo shoot took a really long time, and I was mm-hmm. starting to get like kind of hot. So one of the guys like brought me a fan. So they had like you know a fan <laughs> blowing on my hair at one point. It was so funny. <laughs> For the natural flowing look, right? Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. It doesn't look like you're pregnant. Things have escalated since then. As they do when yeah. one is pregnant. <laughs> okay, reporting live from an electric scooter, uh, decided that feet were not going to do the job here to go from one billboard to the next uh, before my next interview. So we are scooting through San Diego. Wish me luck. Okay, I think Max was on a wild goose chase. This was real shoe leather reporting, and it worked. He found them. And you can see the posters, too. Check out Twitter and use the hashtag WeAreFierce. <laughs> Wound up seeing three of my colleagues, not myself. Uh, everyone looked fantastic. Uh, Karita, Connor, Annalee. Um, ended up seeing them on Park Avenue near Petco Park. Oh, well. Uh, so I might return back and see if I catch myself. But uh, great success. Found the ads. That's it for The Top Line. I'm senior producer Teresa Carey. Our sound engineer is Caleb Hodgson. You can find out more about these topics in our show notes at fiercepharma.com. Look for podcasts. Don't forget to follow The Top Line on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and anywhere you listen. And that's The Bottom Line from The Top Line.